or the E. So the key change, oh, yeah. it looks like. I must say the ladies there, no offense to the men, but the ladies definitely sound, uh, sounded fantastic this morning. I thought we were playing like a uh, backup track or something uh, to support, but it was just you all singing beautifully, and I thought that was um, well done. Definitely think you have the edge on the men there. Before we dive into the message, let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the word that is before us. Help us to stay focused this morning. Help us to stay attentive. Allow no distractions to come into our minds. Help us keep us from daydreaming, from wondering, from worrying about things outside of this moment that is before us. Help us to hear you speak this morning, Father, so that we would be edified, equipped, and sanctified, so that you would be glorified, Father. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23, if you have not already. We'll be in verses 1 through 7. If you need a Bible, we have them uh, scattered throughout below the seats, and we have a stack of them in the back corner uh, by the coffee. Last week, we covered the second half of chapter 22, which was the second half of a song, as David mentioned, that was written by David about his faith. Not that David, King David. Um, about his faith in Yahweh. This week we look at another poem written by David, and both of these poems, they are found in the middle of chapters 21 through 24, which, as we have spoken about before, is a concluding unit of 2 Samuel, and it's written in a chiastic structure, meaning that whatever is at the middle of this structure, this is the focus, this is the climax, this is the highlight, this is the centerpiece uh, so to speak. And so these two poems, which highlight the faith of David and Yahweh, this is supposed to be the main focus of this concluding section. So this poem, it is known as David's last words. And it is one example of when we look at the events recorded in 2 Samuel, we must not assume that they are placed in chronological order. For clearly, verses 1 through 7 are not David's last words in 2 Samuel. Because David speaks again in chapter 24. So this highlights that the author for us in, in First and Second Samuel has been intentional in how he has arranged the material and has done so for certain purposes and that the chiastic structure that we find here at the end of Second Samuel is not some coincidence, but a deliberate action to highlight the faith of King David. As we go through these seven verses, we'll look at who is speaking then look at the two types of people mentioned in David's final words, the just ruler and those who are worthless. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3a. And when I say 3a, I simply mean the first part of verse 3. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So here we have an introduction to the words of David, an introduction that David uses to establish his credibility and his authority. In short, David is stating the reason why the words that follow ought to be heeded by us and why we ought to pay attention. He begins by establishing who he is. He's David, the son of Jesse. 
And you might wonder, well, why does that matter? I mean, who's Jesse anyhow? Outside of David, Jesse's a nobody in the recorded history of Israel. But by mentioning Jesse, David is showing his genealogy. David is showing that, one, that he is an Israelite. And being an Israelite is an important, important part if he claims to be king and claims to be the anointed one of Israel. Deuteronomy 17.15, God says, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Furthermore, beyond the fact that David is an Israelite, David shows himself to be from the line of Judah, that Jesse and himself are Judites. This piece of information grants more credibility to David as he links himself with ancient uh, prophecy, specifically Genesis 49.10, where Jacob, in blessing his sons, blesses Judah with the scepter to rule God's people. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Beyond establishing his Israelite heritage, David reminds the reader that he is the chosen one. He is the anointed. In 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed by the judge and prophet Samuel, as ordered by the Spirit of God. Since that moment, the Spirit of the Lord has been with David. In David's anointing, he has written many psalms, and he refers to himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David here is appealing to his track record, so to speak. He is the author of the songs of the nation. Therefore, his words prior to these that follow, his words have been tested before, and they have been approved of before. In other words, David is a proven, best-selling author on the matters of God. Of course, he's not like, the most, like most best-selling authors of Christian literature today. David actually knew the scriptures, unlike most best-selling authors of our day. David's psalms also carry a prophetic voice because he is God's anointed one. Even Saul, when he was alive, when he was anointed, was considered a prophet at times because he indeed prophesied as well from time to time as recorded in 1 Samuel 10. David implicitly identifies himself as a prophet also in the very beginning of the poem when he uses the words, the oracle, a term in the Hebrew used in reference to prophetic utterances and often used by the prophets of Israel. And as the prophets typically do in Scripture, David starts his utterance, his message, by identifying the authority upon which he speaks. David says it's the spirit of Yahweh that speaks by him. That is, the Holy Spirit is the input, David is the output. David is an instrument of which Yahweh speaks to created man. The fact that the word of God is upon David's mind and soul in his final moments further reveals David's faith and trust in God. And David emphasizes this several times to drive the point home. He says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And this is important, for without acknowledging from whom this message comes from, the authority of it, one might not pay careful attention to what follows, to the words that are spoken. Especially consider the time, the culture, when most communication was oral. Most communication was spoken and heard, not written and read. You had to be ready to hear what was said, for you couldn't just go back up and reconsider the words. Thus, when David says four times in four different ways that God has spoken, 
It's a call to pay attention. It's a call to listen. It's a call to focus on what has been said by God and is going to be said by his prophets. In a similar manner, but not exact manner, the same is true today. When you come to church, you must prepare yourselves to hear from God. You must be ready to pay attention and be focused. For what is said here is not simply the mere utterances of fallen men, but the utterances of God as delivered by his word. It's not that I speak new utterances. David spoke new utterances. I do not, and no pastor does. Any pastor who says he has a word that is new or special for you is a liar. He's a wolf, and he is worthless. And we'll talk more about worthless men at the end. The word I bring is God's word, but it's not new. I may speak of it from a variety of angles and perspectives in regard to how it is applied to our lives, to our church, and how it ought to form our worship of God. But the principal meaning and understanding of God's word is found in his word, not in me. Whatever I say, you ought to be able to go back to the text, back to the scripture, and see it already there. Now, you might not have noticed it before, but after I illuminate the scriptures to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you now can go back to the scripture and see what was already revealed, but now you see it more clearly. If not, I have either failed in how I communicate the truth, or I have deviated from the principal meaning of the text of God's word, or I have just simply put myself in a position I do not belong. It's not that every word that I speak is straight uh, from the text. The illustrations or analogies that I might use, those clearly are not God's word, but the point of the principle or truth that they point to is from the text and is essentially from God. And that is what is to be primarily heard. The underlying truth proclaimed in the message that's rooted in and brought out of God's word. Therefore, when you come to church, understand you come to hear our Holy Father speak. You come to hear Jesus, his son, speak. You come to hear the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus from the Father to us speak. A reality that horrifies me, humbles me, blesses me. A reality that keeps me from being fearful of your opinion about what I say. For I speak not for myself, but I speak what God has already spoken, and I speak with his authority. And as he was David's rock, God is also mine, and I know he is your rock also. Hence, this is why I bathe my sermons in prayer. It's why I bathe you in prayer and how you will receive the message every week. But this truth is not only for when you come to church. This truth is anytime you go to the scriptures, anytime you open up your Bible, anytime you open up your Bible app, you are hearing straight from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What a blessing. What a privilege it is. What an honor that we we are able to hear the very words of the Almighty Creator, the one who knows all things, the one who created all things, the one who has numbered every single star that is out there and who has named every single star that is out there. He has spoken to us, and he has given us his whole word for us to know, to study, to hear from him. No wonder many are willingly, uh, willingly risk their lives to have in their hands a single page of his word, and why others risk their lives so that others may have his holy word in their possession. 
We must never forget the privilege that we have to be able to read and study not just a, a part of his word, but his whole word. I mean, we have copies of his word scattered throughout this building right now. We, it's not lack of access. And we are able to gather freely to do so, to study the word of the creator. Yet how many of us let the word of God sit as a coaster at home or act as a dust collector on a coffee table? How many of us choose Netflix over the life-giving nourishment of God's word? When people are willing to die for this, we're like, oh, I'll go to Netflix instead. How often do we fail to turn the pages of his holy word and instead mindlessly scroll through our social media feeds? We trade our birthright for a bowl of soup. We trade everlasting nourishment for life-sucking pleasure. Our cultural literacy increases, but our biblical literacy decreases. Little wonder why Christian radio is full of toxic theology, Christian bookstores are full of false teachers, and the worship music that is considered popular is full of lies and mischaracterizations of God. Or when so many are easily offended when God's word is actually read at church or actually preached at church. We need to hold a proper perspective of God's word, recognizing he, not us, he, not some mere man, but God, the Almighty, the creator, the judge of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, he is speaking to us. And there are many across this world that would die they would give their life. They would give their limbs. They would suffer greatly to have the freedoms that we have to study his word. So let's hold on to that perspective. Now, what has the rock of Israel, though? What has the rock of Israel spoken to David? Let's read on, starting with verse 3b. That is the second part of verse 3. And we will read through verse 5 to hear the first part of this utterance from God. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? In short, a just ruler is a blessing to those whom he rules over, and he as such is blessed. Exactly, though, how is one to rule justly? There are two things to consider that's presented to us in the text. One is implicit, and the other is explicit. But before I speak to those two things, let me make sure we understand something uh, that might be obvious, but it's not stated here in the text. In order for a ruler to be just, to be righteous, he himself must live according to the very standard that he is ruling. In other words, his life must be just. His life must be righteous, and his rule is actually an outflow of how he lives. A, a righteous, a just ruler does so out, 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 from out of the righteousness and the justice that he himself lives in. If he does not live righteously, then he is a hypocrite and is not a just ruler. Therefore, it is assumed here that the ruler, when ruling justly, is living in the same manner. Now, the two things to consider that are in our text, the first, which is implicit, is to acknowledge who the ruler is ruling over. Men, mankind. That is, those who possess the imago Dei, the image of God. He's not ruling over mere creatures, mere beasts, but men and women. 
whose value and worth is found in the Imago Dei. Not in their lot in life, not what they can or cannot contribute to society, or how useful or useless they are, but that they are of the human race, a privileged race in all of the cosmos, a race not defined by color, not defined by socioeconomic status, or any other reason other than that they, we, bear the image of God. A king may have greater responsibility, and society as a whole may suffer more at the loss of a king, but in God's eyes, the king is a servant of equal value and worth as the street sweeper. Each have their roles, each have their responsibilities, but both bear God's image. Both are loved, both are valued by God. Thus, the ruler would be wise to treat those under him as such. The second thing to acknowledge is this is explicit, and this second thing is explicit in the text, is that the king will be held accountable. That is, the king, the ruler, is to do so fearing God, regardless of their scope of rule. This principle goes back to Moses, um, Exodus 18.21, when his father-in-law gave Moses advice on how to delegate responsibility. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men. Now notice this, the men that he's placing here are men who fear God, and these men who fear God, they're given a, a range of responsibilities. So it's not about the scope. We're all called to fear God. As chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, all those leaders are called to fear God, regardless if they're a chief of ten or a chief of a thousand. Nehemiah gives us an example of one who fears God and those who don't in Nehemiah 5.15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so, because of the fear of God. The fear of God keeps the ruler honest, keeps him compassionate, gracious, and just. One of the responsibilities of the ruler is to ensure justice, God's justice, is practiced and kept. In doing so, the ruler becomes a source of life, a source of vitality, a source of blessing. The just ruler is compared to the morning light that breaks the darkness of night, giving light, giving hope after a long, dark cold night. He's compared to the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, providing warmth and a sense of confidence with a new day. He's like the rain that provides life and refreshment that leads to growth. For where true righteousness exists, or true justice exists, there is life found. To know righteousness is to know life. To know God is to know life. But what does this have to do with us, though? Who here is a king? Who here is a ruler? Is this message simply for those who are in charge? Well, it is a message for those who are in charge, but it's a message for all of us. Are we not all anointed by the Holy Spirit? We who believe in Christ, we who are partakers of the new covenant. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Being anointed, the spirit of God is within us. If his spirit is in us, so is God's authority, so is his power. Not that it is our authority to do as we please, but it's his authority to be exercised in accordance to his will. 
Beyond this, we all have some sort of practical, some pragmatic authority in our lives, every one of us. It differs from one another, from one another in scope and manner, but we all have some sort of responsibility. Fathers have their families. Mothers have their children. Children may not have much, but over time they are given, given responsibility. And how they obey is a reflection in how they will lead. Those of you who teach, you have some level of authority. You rule over your students in some capacity. Those of you who work in law enforcement exercise authority and justice. Others of you are supervisors or bosses in various capacities. And I'm sure if we gave some more time, we could continue the list. But the point is the same. We all have it to some degree. We also have the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 to fill the earth and subdue it. Every one of us who bears the image of God, we have some capacity of ruling authority. And here in America, we have it in a very unique way that we must not ignore nor neglect. In a form of government where the power of the government is found in the people, at least when it was founded. Our voting is an exercise of authority. Our vote is an exercise of our rule in a very unique sense. The founding fathers understood this, and there was an understanding that voting was a privileged responsibility not to be given to godless people, but to people who feared God. Though they all may not have been Christians, they certainly understood the need for moral responsibility and accountability in a free society. We must not think, and David makes this point here, that our private life and our public life can each have their own faith system. If we believe in Christ, we believe in Christ both in private and in public. And that goes with how we vote. For how we vote is a reflection in how we rule. So we must not think, well, that's not American. Faith and politics are meant to be separate. First off, your American history is off if that is what you believe. Samuel Adams, one of the founding fathers, said, Let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. Second, we don't concern ourselves with the American way. As Christians, we concern ourselves with the biblical way. Yes, we are dual citizens, but if we must lose one, it's the American way we lose because sooner or later, as much as we might not like it, the American country, our nation, will one day fall, but God's kingdom will always remain. And yes, you might think, well, what impact does my one vote have? That's not the point. You have the opportunity. You have the obligation. Be faithful to God and let God deal with the rest. Do not be negligent in your faithfulness because of other people's unfaithfulness. So be wise in how you vote, because it is an exercise of rule and authority. When a ruler rules justly in the fear of God, those who are ruled are blessed. Societies, family, businesses, when they are ruled by a just ruler, or when you live justly in your sphere of influence, blessing follows, life flourishes. But when justice Righteousness is ignored, neglected. Societies, families, businesses, and our spheres of influence waste away. Any cursory study of history proves that. A cursory study of 2020 ought to show that. But the incentive isn't just for those who are ruled, but the incentive is also for the ruler as well. David provides his house as an example of being blessed as a just ruler. Has not God granted David's house life? By making of David an everlasting 
covenant, a promise that is ordered and secured, a promise that David can trust to receive help in times of distress. And of course, David is speaking about the Davidic covenant that God has made with him in 2 Samuel 7. God has guaranteed that the house of David will never end and that his house will reign forever. And of course, this is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus, despite the many failings of many of David's descendants. When we ourselves live justly, righteously, and rule likewise, we can expect the same kind of blessing. The Davidic covenant was not made with us specifically. We were in mind, but wasn't made with us specifically. But because of the Davidic covenant, the new covenant was established, which was made for us specifically. As those who believe in the Son of David, Jesus Christ, as a Lord and Savior, we enter into an everlasting covenant that Christ ushered in by the shedding of his blood for our sin upon the cross. As such, he has begun a work with us that, just like with David, is ordered and secured as well. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And as our high priest, we can go to Jesus as David went to Yahweh to receive help. Hebrews 4.16, let us say of confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. In 1 Corinthians 1.4-9, Paul sums up the promises and blessings of our life in the new covenant well, speaking of the gifts we receive to help us wait for Christ's return and how on that day Christ will present us guiltless before the Father. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our faith, when we come into the new covenant, it is ordered and it is secure by his power, by his blessing. And this is the blessing of one who lives righteously, justly, made possible only by the righteousness of Christ. Yet for those who refuse to live this way, there is a consequence. Let's continue on by reading the final verses of David's final words in verses 6 through 7. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So who are these worthless men that are like thorns? If you've been paying attention to Samuel, the issue of worthless men, it's a common theme. We see the word come up rather often. It begins back in 1 Samuel, and when it begins back in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, 16, it's actually um, Eli who's speaking about Hannah. Hannah is, is sobbing, right? She's, she's praying, and Eli thinks that she is drunk and refers to her as a worthless woman. Then the sons of Eli um, in 1 Samuel 2, 12, they are called worthless, for they did not know Yahweh. They are worthless because they didn't know the Lord, but yet they were priests. Then in 1 Samuel 10, 27, some worthless men doubted that Saul, that God's anointed, Yahweh's anointed one, could save them. 1 Samuel 15, 9, Saul and his men devoted what they considered to be worthless to destruction after defeating the Amalekites. And if you recall then, 1 Samuel 15, they were supposed to devote 
all the Amalekites, everything about them. It was supposed to be a, a total destruction. But they kept what they thought was worthy, and whatever they didn't think was worthy, well, they destroyed it. So what is worthless is destined for destruction. Then in 1 Samuel 25, 17, a servant of Nabal refused to, um, excuse me, refers to his master as worthless for how he receives his own servants. Later in that chapter, in verse 25, Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, calls her husband, Nabal, worthless because of how Nabal treated David. 1 Samuel 30, verse 22, those who were selfish and greedy while disagreeing with David about how to share the spoils after they defeated the Amalekites and regained their families, they are called wicked and worthless. Then in 2 Samuel 16, verse 7, Shammai blasphemes David's name by calling him worthless. And it's blasphemy because David isn't worthless, but in this case, Shammai is blaspheming David's name by comparing him as a worthless man. Then in 2 Samuel 20, verse 1, Sheba, the leader of the rebellion that we spoke about a few weeks ago, he is called worthless. Then we have the verse here in chapter 23, comparing worthless men to thorns. Through these examples, we see some commonality between those who are described as worthless and how worthless is used. They don't know God. They lacked faith in God and his purposes. They were selfish people, people who are of this world, people out for their own gain. As such, these people, not living justly, not ruling justly, as in the instance of Eli's sons, they are not life givers. Thus, they are worthless men. In some cases, this word for worthless is actually translated as destruction, as it is in 2 Samuel 22.5. If it does not build up, if it does not provide life, it is a waste, and as such, it is destructive in nature. Therefore, worthless men are like thorns in a field or in a garden. They are useless. There is no need for them to be there. Not only that, but thorns are dangerous. They might be useless, but when you touch a thorn, it pricks, it hurts. It can cause blood. Worthless men may be useless in giving life, but that does not mean that they are not threats. It does not mean that they are not dangerous. Too many thorns in a field can choke out the good growth and what is useful and what is, for what is useful and for what is pleasing. Consider the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. In verse 7, Jesus says other seeds fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and choked them. Then in verse 22, he explains this verse. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Numbers 33, verse 55, God speaking to Moses, the words he is to speak to Israel, says, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of whom you let remain, in other words, those whom you tolerate, shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. The thorns of our age are the temptations of this world, as well as the false teachers within the church. For the worthless thorns exist both without God's people and within God's people. Thorns, worthless people, are useless to God and a threat to God's people. As such, they are destined for judgment. They are destined for destruction and they will be treated as a farmer treats thorns. They will be utterly consumed with fire. And this image is common throughout Scripture. God, speaking 
of the day of redemption for his people whom he refers to as a vineyard in Isaiah 27 verses 2 through 6 says this in that day the day of redemption a pleasant vineyard that's Israel seen of it I the Lord am its keeper every moment I water it lest anyone punish it I keep it day, night and day I have no wrath would that I had thorns and briars to battle I would march against them I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole earth, the whole world with fruit. But God's vineyard will not fill the whole world with fruit if it endures, if it tolerates thorns in its presence. Therefore, God will deal with any thorns that show up. Interestingly enough, in Isaiah 5, 22 chapters earlier, God allows the thorns to grow within his vineyards, and he does so as an act of judgment upon his people. The presence of thorns is not just carelessness by God's people, it's also an act of judgment by God. But in redemption, God will deal with them permanently as he purifies his vineyard, his people, for his glory. Hebrews 6, 7, 8 is another example of this imagery. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Therefore, there is a choice before us. As presented by David's final words, there is blessing to be found for those who live and rule justly, and there's a curse, a fiery judgment for those who live otherwise worthless lives. So, let us be just, let us be righteous, or we shall be worthless. And who wants to be worthless? Right? I mean, who here is like, I'm worthless, I'm fine with that. It's, no one wants to be worthless, that your life is worthless. Like, the reason you're living right now, if it's not for God's glory, you're worthless. That's what you are. doesn't matter what the world tells you. You can love yourself all you want. You're still worthless. If you don't live for God, that's the reality of it. And I know that's uncomfortable. Right? We don't like hearing that because that, that's antithetical to the whole self-esteem culture that exists out there. You don't exist for you. You exist for the glory of God. And you're worthless if you desire to fulfill your own will and not God's. And this, you know, this sounds bad, right? Because it's like, boy, I'm worthless. Yeah, because salvation isn't found in you. And at the same time, it's good news because it's not up to you. You, you can chase everything in this world, and you're going to find futility. You're going to find vanity. It's going to be empty. You are going to be disappointed one turn after the next turn, after the next hit. Whatever drug, whatever thing you pick up, whatever passion you pursue, if God is not in it, it will disappoint you. It will be empty, and it will, it will be worthless. But if you pursue God, it will satisfy. You will find fulfillment. You will find identity, and it's outside of you, and it will sustain you. Everything else in this life will disappoint you and will only lead you to destruction. All of existence, all of creation has one purpose. Glorify God. If you're struggling, if you're asking, why am I here on this earth? What's the point of my life? Why can I not find fulfillment in this life? Glorify God. That's it. That's the fulfillment. That's your purpose. That's why you live and breathe. Parents, you don't exist for your kids primarily. You exist for the glory of God. Your kids benefit when you glorify God. They are blessed when you glorify God. 
If anything exists within the entire cosmos, within the entire cre- creation, all of creation, the entire universe, if anything that exists that willfully decides not to glorify God, per God's word, the mouth of God says it's worthless. It's useless. That person has no place in God's garden. And as such, God will glorify himself when he executes his perfect justice upon that person. This is worse than simply sinning, right? Because we all sin, but the worthless man, the worthless woman, sins and does not trust in Christ for forgiveness. They either neglect God completely or presume to be right with God by other means other than the blood of Christ. Whereas the other choice of living justly, righteously, that's not a life free of sin, but it's a life of trust in the midst of sin, in the midst of being delivered from power of, of sin by the power of Christ. It's, it's a life where we struggle and we might deal with depression, we might deal with anxiety, we might deal with the, the doubts of life of why I'm here, but we trust Christ. We delight in God. We, we, we glorify God most when we are most satisfied in him. And even when we are like, boy, you know, I feel, I feel down today. I feel maybe the devil is whispering to you, hey, you're worthless. Well, outside of Christ, you are. But if you're in Christ, you can tell the devil, no, not anymore, because I'm redeemed. I'm in Christ. I belong to Christ. He has claimed me. He is mine. I am his. You are a child of God. You are an heir of an inheritance that does not perish. But if you reject Christ, then it's true. But how is it to be done exactly to live justly? To live so that we can say, I am not worthless. Is it done in our own power, in our own will, in our own volition? No, it's the same way that it was done for David. Faith in Yahweh. Us delighting in God. Us taking pleasure and being obedient to him that, yes, I exist for you, the creator, that, that all of creation has came to being for his glory. And he asks us, he invites us to be part of that glory and with it comes many blessings. And that's where we find our worth, our value is in God and him alone. Not the American dream, not academics, not athletics, not careers, not our families, but Christ alone. We do this by trusting in the rock of Israel, by remembering we are not our own, but we are his. We in him and he in us. And we can't, again, we cannot do this on our own. If we try to do this on our own, you will tire, you will fail, you will be disappointed, and the cycle will just repeat itself over and over and over again. Our nature that we are born with will not allow us to live this way. No matter how hard we want it or how hard we try, we need a new nature. We need to be born again. And if we are in him, then we have been born again. Thus we are a new creation with new wills, with new power. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when you who are a believer, when you struggle with doubt, when you struggle with depression, meditate on this verse. You're a new creation. The new has come. Trust in the work of Christ. Don't trust in your feelings because your feelings will deceive you. Trust in what is true. Trust in the word of God. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And how does, how does this person live? Then life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live this faith by, by my emotions or by going from one, hot, one good experience to another good experience to another experience. I live it by faith and truth, by trusting Christ because he has gave himself for me and I find rest in that. So this new life must be done in Christ, only in Christ and in no other name and in no other way. And it is Christ who fulfills all these verses that we've talked about here this morning, verses 1 through 7. Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Jesse, is an Israelite. He is a Judite, so he fulfills Genesis 49.10. He is the Lord's anointed, hence his title, Christ, meaning anointed one. Right? Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. David was a just and righteous ruler, but as we know, he was imperfect. Only Jesus, who is God, is able to rule perfectly and with pure justice and pure righteousness. Therefore, if he is our Lord and Savior and we serve him and he is a perfect and just ruler, what happens to those whom he's ruling over? They are blessed as well. As such, Jesus, being the Son of God, living in perfect obedience to the Father, is blessed by the Father and has been given all authority in heaven and earth and granted the throne of David to sit on it for one, at one day and to rule for all eternity. And it is Jesus, the one who was crucified for our sin, the one who was raised and exalted by the Father, who will take an iron rod and he will judge all the worthless thorns, all the worthless people of all of time and set them ablaze in fiery judgment as he executes perfect justice upon his enemies. Because we all exist ultimately for a reason. Either we accept that reason or we reject it. If we reject it in that reason, we, are, we exist for God's wrath, in which he will be glorified in. But praise God that while there is time, because there is time in this age, while we still breathe, if we find ourselves to be worthless, God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to make peace with him. Recall Isaiah 27 and verse 5. After talking about the thorns, about what he would do to them, he says, or, or if they exist, let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Therefore, if you figure yourself to be worthless by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you realize you've been chasing your will, your desire, your agenda, and neglecting God's glory, God's will, then now is the moment to accept Christ. Because it's there for you. God has made a way for you so you don't remain under his wrath, but that you can remain under his love for eternity. Not on the basis that you have done anything, but purely on the basis of his son. So accept Christ, confess your sin, and repent, and enjoy the fellowship with the son and his saints at the table that we're about to go into. And it's not like it's going to be easy, because it won't be. Right? Just because you accept Christ, it's not, all your problems in life aren't going to go away, but you will have a peace and a joy that you can't find anywhere else. But if you are not worthless, if you are in Christ, then as we come to the table, rejoice in God's work that has been done in you by the Spirit of Christ. Be encouraged to stay the course. Like if you're feeling down today, or if the devil five days out of the seven days of the week is saying you're worthless, and, and, and you at times believe it, but you know you believe in Christ, reject that, come to the table, rejoice, find rest in the work in Christ. Because your identity is not in you, it's in Christ. It's not in what the world thinks about you. Your fulfillment is not in the world, your fulfillment is in Christ. So find rest in Christ. Stop striving because once we choose Christ, once we are found in Christ, we will never lose Christ, regardless of how we feel. Because we have this truth God has spoken.
Also, at the same time, don't allow the devil to cause us to think that joy of life, joy of eternity, because we, we are found in Christ, can be found in disobeying Christ. If we're in Christ, we will obey him as much as we are able to, and he gives us what we need to obey him. So let us remain faithful. Let us remain blessed. Let us consider how we are to live. Remembering Christ is returning to judge all, those who are just and those who are worthless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your word this morning. I ask that your spirit would speak and comfort everyone here, Father. It would convict as necessary as well. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us, Father. We look at your word, we hear you speak, and your standard, your requirements, we can't meet them. And we recognize that those who reject your holiness, those who reject your will, Father, you, you don't beat around the bush, you speak strongly. You, you call it for what it is. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to reveal to us your will, your holiness, and we thank you that you have made a way to us, that despite us in when we are born as children of wrath, that we are born into a state of worthlessness. But by your grace, by your spirit, by your redemptive sovereign will, you have made a way for us to be made anew, to be born again, to be made righteous, to be called your children, to be called your son, to be called your daughter. That our identity is not left on us. Our purpose in life is not dependent on us. It's, it's all on you. We thank you, Father, for that. We thank you that you have given us this truth, this eternal truth. Father, when our feelings, when our emotions, our experiences betray us, when our flesh betrays us, help us to call to mind the truths of Scripture. Help us to rest in the truths of Scripture, the promises that you have given us. We thank you that our faith is not dependent on how sincere we are or how emotional we are but on the work of Christ and us putting our faith in your Son. Help us to delight in that. Help us to find joy in that, Father, especially when the rain clouds come. Father, help us as a body to love one another, to walk with one another. Help us to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost, those who are living worthless lives, Father. Help us to give them the good news, to give them your truth so that they will find worth, value, purpose in their lives, Father. Something that is lacking greatly in our society these days. Help us to be bearers of the good word that people no longer have to wonder why they, why they are living and why they are here. Father, we exist for your glory and we ask that you would glorify yourself by the power of the Spirit that, that dwells within us. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless the elements before us, the cracker and the juice, that they would be gifts that would nourish our souls, that would give us joy uh, this day and this week, that they would linger with us, not just only this week, but the weeks to come, Father, and that we would, again, anytime the devil comes at us, anytime the flesh betrays us, anytime the world says, you're not worthy, you're not worth it, or, or whatever it may be. Help us to go back to your word, to the truth, and recognize who we are. That when you look at us, you see your son. When you look at us, you see an heir. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your word. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory. 
And we ask that in your glory that we would be blessed, Father. Father, we ask all this by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, by the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.